Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every two weeks I sit down for a gorgeous 30-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that I'm curious about. This week, why does it hurt so bad with chronic pain expert Professor Kathy Cal from the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA? And welcome this week. It's Valentine's Day week. Everyone's living for it, or you're not. And 
can I just tell you something? I get it. Also, can I just say, thanks for all the well wishes and love from uh, from Queer Eye. You guys have been so sweet. Uh, if you're new to Getting Curious because of Queer Eye, welcome. Uh, strap on your seats for a very informative ride. And this week, we welcome Professor Catherine Cal, right? Yes. It is a different spelling than you would think. Well, it's a different pronunciation of the spelling than you would think. That's correct. Which I love. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it throws you for a curveball. So, Dr. Cal, and, uh, but I'm going to call you. You're going to call me Kathy, please. Oh, my God. I love that. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about what you do. So, I'm a professor at UCLA in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences. And my profession is an opioid neuropharmacologist who studies chronic pain. Dang. That is a gorgeous title. Um, so the first thing that comes to my mind when you tell me that is an episode of Golden Girls where Dorothy basically gets diagnosed with fibromyalgia before we knew what that was. And all these doctors, like, made fun of her. And, like, they – well, they didn't make fun of her, but they didn't take her seriously. And uh, they were like, you know, you need to get t- – you, you're hysterical. You're this or that. It was – very, you know, I think ahead of its time, which I think is fierce. Uh, but, you know, this this whole episode kind of dovetails on the opioid episode that we did with your husband, who is in the room, who's right over here, you guys. So, But I felt it, it appropriate with Valentine's Day around the corner. So, you know, whether it's like emotional pain, like a broken heart of a Valentine's Day situation, or you like literally broke your ankle, why has the effective treatment of pain management been so like evasive for so long? Like, why is she such a slippery kitty? Because pain is very complex first. So it encompasses multiple components. You have the sensory component, so the intensity of that pain and being able to locate where that pain is, but then you have a cultural uh, component on top of that, you have genetics on top of that. So besides that sensory component, you have the affective, emotional component, as well as the cognitive in terms of how you interpret it, and everybody's going to be different. Okay, yes. So what I hear you saying is that basically the reason it's slippery cat is because there's like not only emotional, like there's emotional, which is like a whole other bag. And then there's the physical piece, which is like, where is it coming from? How do I get it better? And then it's like, culturally, there's ways that we're supposed to react. And then also, I feel like there could even be gender, you know, because like, like boys are supposed to like, take it, you know, take it like a man and like, ladies are supposed to like, not suffer or complain and like, you know, not talk about it. Well, there's actually scientific evidence to suggest that women actually do experience more pain. And then on top of that, redheads more. Redheads actually have more pain fibers in their skin than any other person. But I also feel like ladies suffer better than men. Like, I feel like, like, I feel like all the grown men, like my grandpas, which one of them literally just passed away last week, so not to speak of the dead, but I just know that my grandmas went through way more pain than my grandpas. Like, I feel like they suffered more and didn't complain. Well, we all go through childbirth. You guys don't get to experience that. Yeah, so your, like, pain threshold is just, like, higher anyhow. But even ladies who don't have babies, I feel like, deal with more bullshit and it hurts more, you know? Right. But that's a different podcast. It is a different podcast because then you get into the hormonal um, contribution of that pain experience as well. And we know that that's actually a real thing. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, like because like hormones changes the whole ballgame anyhow. Yeah, so we have lots of pieces in our brain that are sexually dimorphic that are different between men and women that also contribute to other things. Wait, our brains are literally different? Like men and women's brains are literally different? There are regions in our brain that are different sexually. 
between men and women. They're called sexually dimorphic nucleus. Have you ever heard of that study where they like took all the gay people and cut their brains open and the boys had different size? That, the, based on your reaction, I'm feeling that study's bullshit and that's like a wives' tale that I'm even saying it. Well, there are – yes. yes wives' tale. For the most part. <laughs> it's a wives' tale. Yeah. So gay men's like areas are the same as like straight guys' areas yes. in the brain. Cute. Busting myths left and right on getting curious. Thank you. That wasn't even a question. Um, like it really wasn't. You know something? That's This is why we don't stick too much to formats in here because sometimes you'd miss a cute question. Um, so that's cool. So then what's the difference between chronic pain and then like other types? Like, oh, obviously, it's like, you know, you get your fingernail ripped off. That's like acute pain. But then like, yeah, so like what is chronic pain? Right. So chronic pain, so first of all, acute pain is any type of trauma or physical pain, but it becomes chronic if it lasts more than three months. So a lot of different societies have defined chronic pain as any pain that is constant or intermittent that lasts at least three months, then it becomes chronic but it's considered also to be pathological. So acute pain is thought to be an important um, mechanism for protecting the body. So you want to have pain so that you don't, if you break an arm, you don't want to go out and do more damage to it, right? Um, But chronic pain is considered pathological because it no longer serves a useful purpose. Got it. So people that, say, have a back injury and then they get, like, addicted to, like, you know, Vicodin or something to, like, treat the back injury. Like, if the injury is healed but they still have pain, is it is it pathological if there's still an injury there? Yes. So even after tissue injury heals, you can have a chronic pain state because of changes that are happening within – primarily the central nervous system at the level of the spinal cord and the brain so that that person still experiences pain even though the injury is healed. So people that are dependent on painkillers to get through long-term injuries, what does the road to getting off of those pills look like? Is it possible? I mean, obviously it's got to be possible, right? Like do people have to stay medicated like forever if they have like a, you know, an ankle injury or like gymnasts, for instance, Like, I'm sure after beating up your body for all of those years and then when you, like, stop, like, or bodybuilders, like, you know, people who, like, you know, have crazy bodies and then they stop, like, how, like, what's that process like? So a lot of, not a lot, but many, um, I I don't even know what the percentages will be, but a lot of people on, with chronic pain actually have long-term, talking years of opioid therapy as well. So there are there are lots of cases um, in the literature showing that you can actually have people manage their lives and manage their pain on that have been on opioids for twenty years, but then other people are not so lucky because they actually get to the addicted stage where it takes over their life. So they're actually not able to manage their life situation. So there's a difference between managing your pain with opioids and having it take over your life and becoming addicted. Correct. But what if the person experiencing chronic pain doesn't want to have to take opioids to manage it? Oh, there's lots of other options. Like? So most of it is through serendipity. So we found that anticonvulsant-like drugs, antidepressant drugs are actually treating pain, and it's because of some of the underlying mechanisms responsible for that pain. So a lot of chronic pain states have 
neurons, which are the uh, neurofibers that transmit sensory information in your body, have almost a spontaneous-like activity. So it looks like epilepsy in that same context, though there's spontaneous activation. So the anti-epileptics are thought to... Calm down, random. Exactly. So it's almost like like in those injuries, like the pain neurons or whatever, they're just so used to firing that even though the injury is healed, they just, for whatever reason, they keep going. Well, there's lots of reasons, underlying mechanisms of why they might do that. But yes, the, the whole system is changed so that now they just spontaneously fire. Dang. That's how gabapentin was discovered. What's you know, gabapentin? Gab- gabapentin or neurontin. Have you heard of neurontin? Um, have you heard of pregabalin or Lyrica? Lyrica, yes. Fibromyalgia treatment. Yes. but Well, it's the same kind of medication, okay? Lyrica is second generation of the gabapentin. So gabapentin was actually um, made as an anti-epileptic drug. And then physicians realized that people that had epilepsy were actually getting better pain treatment. Mm. And so then Pfizer realized that that was happening and their sales went up in for gabapentin $10 million just in one year. And that just kind of speaks to the chronic pain situation because then then they got fought. Well, maybe we just shouldn't go into that. Well, <laughs> well, so well, so cuz I'm um, because the side effects of something like a gabapentin or a Lyrica are probably cuter and less addictive than something like Vicodin or like – is Vicodin an opioid again? I should remember yes, that from our – it is, right? Okay. It is. Um, so people – there's is there less side effects like your digestive system doesn't get so messed up so and you don't get like puffy? The, yeah, it's one of the safest medications that you can take in terms of side effect profile. So you get sedated. Um, but in terms of – That's the side effect of it? Yeah. You just makes you a little – Yep, sleepy. Mm-hmm. So you would try to take Lyrica like before bed and then it like would still last like when you wake up and stuff? Um, or do you have to go through no, the sleepiness you would, when you take it? No, you have to, to go through the sleepiness when you take it. But it's kind of – But it's probably no sleepier than fucking freaking Vicodin. No, no. Because yeah, that should make you real sleepy. And and it also has the same kind of pharmacology as an opioid. So after you take oh. it for so many weeks – you get tolerant to those side effects oh. of the sedation. Oh, you get tolerant to it. Okay, mm-hmm. cute. Yeah. Do you see any benefits of being in that on that as opposed to like a, a opioid-based one? It depends on the type of pain. So some pains are really good at being able to be treated with the gabapentins. But if you look at – so the clinical studies that um, uh, have looked at the effectiveness – of gabapentin in terms of treating different types of chronic pain. They're really good in, in certain types of chronic pain and not so good in others. Mm. And the average, um, I'll, I'll put this out there, it's called numbers needed to treat. So the number of patients you have to treat for even just one person's pain to be um, decreased by 50%. Gabapentin is around 8. An opioid is about 2.5. So opioids are still better but a lot of people want to and physicians want to go towards the gabapentins and antidepressants because less addiction potential and less side effects. Can you kind of start with that and it's kind of like going at it with like a slingshot and then if that doesn't work, then you might kick get in the big girl heels and just go for the opioid management? Yeah, so now we have all of these algorithms for treating different types of chronic pain and one of the top ones that you're always supposed to pick are the gabapentinoids. But is the goal ever, you know, I'm a yogi. I was like a militant vegan for four years. Like I read Skinny Bitch and it scared me so bad. I like literally didn't touch cow for four years. Like it took me like, it took me like watching my stepdad passing away in our living 
living room to be like, you know what? I think I'm going to start shoving pizza in my mouth so fast. Like, you know, like it's a, that's like what finally got me to give in. And now, you know, I haven't looked back. I love it. You know, great. Love it. So sorry, you veggies. I'm sorry. I, and, and I probably will go back. You know, it's a different podcast as well. Um, but is the goal ever to like treat the chronic pain so that you don't have to keep taking a medication for the rest of your life and maybe like go underneath all that? Like, is that, are people looking at that? Like, cause you know, for me, like, I don't want to take something that's going to be in my liver for the rest of my life and be dealing with that. You know, my poor organs are already dealing with enough. You know what I mean? So you can't treat chronic pain with just a drug. What about, oh, so you got to do acupuncture and like other you stuff too? You have to do behavioral therapy. You have to accept that you have chronic pain. You have to do lifestyle modifications. And then there's the drugs on top of that. And then maybe sometime if you've been doing that for a while, you could like <laughs> maybe experiment with like peeling back the dosage by like you can like wean yourself off of it someday if you feel like maybe you're ready to or something right so there's a lot of studies now that actually show that opioids a lot of those clinical studies that i mentioned where you know it's the 2.5 is the numbers needed to treat they've only done studies for 12 weeks now there's studies that are really longitudinal more than a year and they're finding that opioids are no better than just taking an aspirin or or ibuprofen so long-term, opioids are not really doing anything for their pain. So basically, in those studies, they said that taking opioids long-term is no worse than taking an aspirin long-term? No, no. Sorry. No. What I'm saying is that that long-term opioid therapy hasn't actually proved to be any more effective, any more effective than just taking yeah. So there's very, very new studies, and maybe it's very specific to certain populations of chronic pain patients, but that's what we're seeing. In general. Because I got to say, there's this person who shall remain nameless that used to work at a place that I used to work at who I knew to be hopelessly addicted to Vicodin and was so mean in his withdrawals from it. Like, I mean, truly, like, get out of the way, so verbally abusive, and I would say physically abusive. You know, really just an awful, awful human piece of walking flesh that isn't alive anymore. Uh, but he was really so fucked up. And, yeah, so, like, the the withdrawals and, like, the side effects of, you know, having your management of pain get out of control because you become addicted to these drugs are really, you know, they're a cost to so many people's lives and, like, the people around their lives. So, like... In your experience of, you know, working in this industry, like, what are what is the fallout of the management going into the addiction? Or maybe somebody, because maybe we already covered that. Maybe more of the question is, like, what are... Well, no, we can talk about that for a minute because I think it's an important point. So there's lots of studies <clears throat> that show that chronic pain patients can become addicted to their opioids. But if you separate out the people that have prior substance abuse people that have a psychopathology like a mood disorder or that they have a genetic susceptibility, the incidence of opioid addiction in those chronic pain patients goes down more than tenfold. So there's specific um, things that physicians are, should be screening for when they're prescribing opioids to know whether or not they have an increased risk at developing a substance abuse. But chronic pain is not one of those. Okay. Was that 15 minutes? Okay. Uh, so, you guys, that was just 15. We're only halfway there, honey. Uh, you guys, so uh, more to come uh, with getting curious. You know, I, I love this episode. I think you guys are just going to love it, too. It's, like, so good. It's so juicy. It's so much. You just enjoy this little commercial break, and we're going to be back with more good and cures right after this. <laughs> 
things just keep getting better. If you haven't seen that I'm the new groomer on Queer Eye, currently on Netflix, streaming globally worldwide, get into it, download it. Netflix loves it when you watch the whole thing in a day and then watch the whole thing again the next day. Binge it, re-binge it, tell your friends, tell your sisters, tell your wife, tell your brothers, tell your kids, tell everybody. Tell your dog, watch it with your cat. I love you guys so much. And welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness, and we are with Dr. Cal, honey, but we are calling her Kathy, and that is per her, not per me. So, because you know I love to call people professor. So, uh, basically what we were just saying was that, you know, when doctors accurate or when opioids are properly prescribed to people who don't have a predisposition to addiction, a psychopathology that would be like a hot mess when mixed with an opioid, or a... Uh, like predisposition from a prior family member having it, the instances of addiction and abuse go down by tenfold. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So so they – but, you know, kind of I think what people would say to that is is that like because the mental health care in this country is so bad and the ease that people can get these pills that do have predisposition – and a mental disability. Like, I mean, I think people are getting it, like, left, right, and center, especially, like, doing hair. I will get new clients sometimes where I'm just like, holy shit. Like, what are you on? Literally. I mean, just like, yeah. So I, I feel like misprescribing or self-prescribing or whatever, it's like, what are we going to do? Like, what do you – like, what's the suggestion of a doctor to, to someone that you – like, let's say your friend is – totally swallowing like seven Vicodins a day and then polishing that off with an Ambien or two to go to sleep at night. Like, what do you say to the people? And Like, what, like just go to Al-Anon or something and focus on your own side of the street and like hope that they get better? Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, I think you have to start with your primary care physician and then get a referral probably to an appropriate place for, you know, group therapy and, and whatever it is that you need to do to get off of those meds. First, you have to accept it. You have to accept that the medication is actually what's causing the problem more than anything else. Yeah, because I would imagine that people who do, you know, self-medicate could end up creating, like, much bigger problems than the one that they were originally trying to handle. Oh, of course, yeah. Because the longer you take the opioids, the worse that original problem is going to become, especially if you're taking it for depression or treating your anxiety, because we know now that long-term opioids can actually precipitate even new... Um, diagnosis of depression as well as make depression worse. So one thing I want to ask about that is is that there's several people in my life who I know uh, that have been like long-term sober from um, opioids, heroin, and uh, also, you know, my stepdad had been sober for like 28 years when he passed away. So I grew up like coloring, coloring books, like outside of like 12-step meetings. Like I'm very familiar with recovery. I'm like, I you know, I think it's great. I'm all about it. I'm interested in it. Um, I've you know, um, actively using my filter on what I want to say and not say. But I've noticed that people who have long-term sobriety, especially from heroin and opioids, are that, like, there's this thing where I've seen where they get clean for, like, 10 years, and then, like, there's something where, like, 10 years clean, they, like, especially with heroin, like, it's, like, not so much alcohol, it's not so much, like, you know, crack, coke, like, none of the other drugs. But there's this thing about, like, something about when when people get on heroin, it creates, like, such – it's so addictive that, like, it never really works itself all the way out of your brain. So I've just noticed that people will a lot of times after seeming to be clean for so long will all of a sudden, like, relapse and spiral about, like, this 10-year mark. Have you seen that? Are you familiar with that? Is that just, like, something that I've noticed that isn't really, like, a thing? So I don't know about the chronic pain patients in that situation, but certainly – 
the opioid addicts, there's definitely lots of evidence in the literature that there is a trigger. So that trigger brings back a memory, and that memory is associated with taking the drug, so then it links it together. Mm. So they that trigger then becomes, I have to take the opioid to deal with this situation. Got so it. So that's typically what it is. Is We think it's it's got to do with the fact that when they're taking an opioid, they're forming these long-term memories of that opioid is basically treating this specific indication, whether or not it's an anxiety or it's a bad breakup with a girlfriend or it's, you know, losing a job or even maybe a chronic pain, like you can't you can't go out and work because totally. you can't do it. And and so you're going along in life and then all of a sudden something happens. So you've made this memory, you've made this association between drug taking and relief of whatever that was. And then you're sober for 10 years, but something happens. Maybe you have a child and that child is going through something similar or you have a friend or or someone dies and then all of a sudden it's triggered again. And that basically is triggering those memories that have already been formed in your brain that now say, okay, go take opioids. We know that we can deal with this situation if we take opioids. Right. So what um, what is the like kind of pharmaceutical pharmacology treatment of chronic pain's opinion on the whole of like Eastern treatment of chronic pain? Like, does it think it's cute and they should work together? Does it think it's, like, whacked? Because, like, my grandma, for instance, like, she only believed, like, anything that Mayo Clinic would say. And if I was like, you know, Mom, like, maybe you should stop drinking so much milk because you have COPD and, like, it makes more mucus when you drink all this milk, you know, and you, like, are already hacking up a lung every juice. And she'd be like, get off that bullshit. Like, I'm drinking milk. Like, Mayo Clinic says that's all bullshit. You know what I mean? So what do like what do the Western people think about Eastern pain management? So there's lots of pain clinics, chronic pain clinics, even in Los Angeles that combined East West medicine. But and that's LA, and we're hippy dippy anyway. So what about like the pharmacological world on the whole? So uh, let me give you some background to this. The first thing that you need to be aware of is that medical students get very little pain education. And on top of that, they get an hour of opioid pharmacology. So nobody really knows how to treat pain in this country. So, so let's just like, yeah, one. wait, so you got to even I mean, unpack that, that though. Like, be, that that's crazy though. Strong, but but an hour, an hour and all of those seven many, years. Many medical schools only have one to two hours of just the pharmacology, let alone nothing to do with the pain. And, and there's a study out there that I can tell you about that looked at this even um, it was in Canada, not in, in the U.S., that compared the amount of training you got to look at pain from the veterinary perspective versus the medical students. And the veterinary medicine had 10 times more time devoted to being able to recognize pain and treat pain than the medical students. And where that's interesting is, is because, you know, animals can't talk. So you do have to do more investigation. And that's almost worse for humans because we can talk. And a lot of times we're lying to try to get what we want, you know, because we're fucking addicted to the pill and you don't really. And you, No, seriously. There's so many hairdressers I've worked with where they were like, wait, who's your doctor? He's pretty chill about that. Like he because I because like mama, my back hurts. I need to get a little something, something. No, seriously. I've seen that so many times. So it's almost like doctors need to be more judicious and like. 
right. save us from ourselves. But the lack of education is not helping them do not that. Helping them, right? So they're being told to treat pain by a medication. But true or false, when a doctor pain. prescribes something, don't they get like some cute money? Like don't right? Like don't, like isn't like isn't there like isn't there encouragement for doctors to prescribe? Like if a doctor prescribes like five pills and then he prescribes like one pill. Doesn't his checkbook get cuter when he get prescribes me five pills in one pill? No. No. So that's a misconception. That's a misconception. That's just like the pituitary gay study. Yeah. 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 So a physician will get more money if he does a procedure, right? Uh. So if they inject something or if they Ooh. do something else. So it's all based – the pay is based A la carte on, very much. Yes. <laughs> and that doesn't prescribe – and that doesn't and that doesn't include prescriptions. That's correct. Got it. That's correct. Cute. But getting back to the education uh-huh. piece, when you were talking about the whole chronic pain in East-West medicine, a lot of probably 80% of chronic pain in our culture is what's referred to as musculoskeletal. So in other words, you know, you may have a sore shoulder and it becomes to the point it gets frozen or something and you can't do anything anymore. That can really be treated well with with acupuncture, deep tissue massage, or trigger point injections. And a lot of people don't really practice this kind of medicine. So there are some anesthesiologists who do that and some chronic pain clinics, but it's it's really poorly. Especially if you're in like North Dakota or something. That's right. Right. And you probably have to be much more. And also like, like I had this thing happen where like I got, um, like I got, I got injured, uh, pretty severely and it like wasn't my fault and it does create like a big it was like a practical joke on wrong and it does like create a list of like psychological things for you to get over because like as you're not able to work or like do whatever and you're like in pain and you already are like hurt but then it like affects other areas of your life because like you can't work and then like the next day you got to like you relive the trauma of the injury and you relive you know because you're like shoes full of blood you know you're like on the couch because you can't move and your foot you know. So getting back to that definition of pain, it's not just that sensory experience, it's that emotional experience. So if that injury was preventing you from being able to pay your rent or take your kids to school or put food on the table, that pain is exacerbated even more and more. So what do people do in that situation? Like, is there any recourse for people like that, like in the world? Like, what do people do? Like when they get into, you know, like some aflac sort of situation where like, you know, you got hurt on the job and, and now you're like on these pills and you can't like, there's like, what, just like called rehab or just like get it together? Like you just... Well, there are resources, but there's not as many resources as you would hope there would be for that. What's your, like, doctor, cute, like, John Lennon, like, if it was a perfect world, like, if you could just, you know, like, make any world you wanted, like, what would it look like? Like, for that, like, for for people that get, like, in trouble with, like, chronic pain. So if people get in trouble with chronic pain, I would like to have every single person have access to a pain clinic who actually knows how to properly diagnose it, and how to properly treat it. And there's some clinics that don't even use opioids. So that's where I would like to see it. I'd like to see a psychologist on staff. I would like to see um, a anesthesiologist who can do procedures and all of the different instrumentations to make sure there's not actually anything else physical that you shouldn't be doing through surgery. And then you have, you know, a... a uh, a contract with your physician saying that you're willing to do this, 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 and this, and be very careful about your opioids if that's what ends up being prescribed. Right. Love. So what do you say to the person like in, you know, like 
Fargo or like, you know, Tallahassee or like, I'm so sorry if you're in like literally in Fargo or Tallahassee and you're like, hey, we have good pain places. But like, what do you say to the people that it's like not LA and it's not hippy dippy and there's not like readily available things? So now we have iPhones and there are many, probably more than a dozen apps on your phone to help you manage your pain. What's your favorite one? There's a few out there, and it depends on whether or not it's a pediatric pain or if it's, say, different types of chronic pain, if it's more, um, if they're looking for more meditation-based. But there's also apps that give you links to actual physicians to be able to have, like, telemedicine. Okay, wait. Before we wrap it up, because I did ask the Twitter question, and this boy actually did ask the question that I was going to ask anyway that I didn't get to. So he's super smart. I wonder if he's going to be my husband. Wouldn't that be crazy if he ended up being my husband? Oh, my God. I'm sorry if you have a boyfriend already, and that's awkward, Ross Brenneman. Um, is medical cannabis really as good for pain as some natural doctors suggest, comma? Uh, what was his other one? Because it was cute, too. How and why can stressing extra- – well, I think we already talked about why stress and anxiety manifest itself into physical body pain kind of in the reverse – but also that's kind of – oh, wait, we, 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 this is going to be like a little tiny bit longer. Uh, so so broken heart pain, bringing it back to Valentine's Day. How can that – like that stress and anxiety or loss of a job, whatever, like how can stress or anxiety result in physical pain? So, as fast as you can because we talked for 30 minutes already. Yeah. <laughs> I realize that. But it's, <laughs> it's not something I don't think we really know yet except that we do know that there are specific pathways – um, pain pathways that go to emotional areas in the brain. So you have, if you, if I pinch you, if I can pinch you right now, uh-huh. okay. If I pinched you to the point where it was causing tissue damage or you were like bleeding, bleeding or something, you would have a pain pathway that went directly to an area of the brain called the amygdala. So it goes there. That's the fight or flight one, isn't it? Exactly. Ah! And so, yes, therapy. I know about that, honey. (laughs) So, that amygdala region is really important in your pain experience, and that broken heart is triggering those same areas. (sighs) Okay. That was good, and that was also very fast, and I loved that, Kathy. Second of all, is medical cannabis really as good for pain as some uh, natural doctors suggest? Okay. I would go out to say, first of all, I think yes. Okay. But I'm not a doctor. Yes. So I'm going to say yes as well. Um, but there's very in moderation. Little, but there's very little research done in the United States on this because it's of a just scheduled, sessions. No, it's a Schedule and One Nixon. drug, and we can't actually yeah. do any research right. on it. So the studies have come out of Israel and Canada, and they show in specific types of neuropathic pain, which is caused by damage or dysfunction of the nervous system, that smoking cannabis is very effective in terms of minimizing their pain. Honestly, that makes me want to like shove this microphone so far down my throat. I'm like so upset about that. You know what I mean? Because it does have medical benefits. And if you watch the 13th with Ava DuVray, she talks about why marijuana is a schedule one drug. And it is so messed up. There's so many like racial and economic and, you know, really messed up reasons for why that's the case. And also like the fucking cotton gin because they didn't want to have hemp outrun fucking cotton because it's a much better fucking fabric. And I'm sure my friend Tan France on the hit show Queer Eye on Netflix would agree that hemp material is gorgeous. Also... Uh, let me just see this other one because I, I, it, it could have been cute. Oh, where did the saying uh, that you can't feel pain in two places at once come from? Is that a thing or is that like – that's not a fact, right? That's like not a thing. Um, well, it's partly true. So our ability to control pain is 
through this descending modulation. And one way to be able to take pain away in your knee is to create pain somewhere else. Is that the cutting thing kind of? Is that why cutting kind of psychologically would work? Because if you had pain, like a heart pain, and then you like really like created pain somewhere else, it would make the heart pain lesser? I'm not knowledgeable enough to be able to talk about cutting. But Well, you shouldn't cut, you guys. I mean, don't do it. certainly, like, if you're hitting the whole thing about shaking. It's a whole, like, let me punch you in the face to take the pain off of, like, the paper cut or whatever. Well, yeah, but even more simple than that. Like, if you touch something hot on the stove, what's the first thing you do? You shake your hand. Well, shaking your hand is making it feel better, but it's also making you feel better because you're gating that pain. There's a whole process in our body that allows us to minimize that pain by shaking our hand <sighs> that we haven't gotten into. But I love that. Why do you sometimes experience fleeting pain or random parts? Oh, this is a really good one, and then we're going to wrap it up. Sometimes I get this really, really painful, like deep, deep clench, like way up in my insides that I'm always scared is like colorectal cancer. But then my doctor said that it's actually, um, this like random muscle that's like way up in your butt. And it does that sometimes. And he said, that's actually normal. And then my friend Alicia said that it happens to her too. And then I felt better. But why do we get random fleeting moments of pain in our body? Is it just that whole epilepsy thing that you were talking about before? Like sometimes those little things, those little neuro, those little neurons just fire. But my guess is just something to do with your digestion. And, and sometimes visceral pain is, is, you know, when you're talking about like things in your core and whether or not your stomach or your gut or your bladder or your colon, that pain is the most difficult to treat. And because it's like, where is it coming from? Like even a little twist in that that causes excruciating pain. Like think about think about the people who have kidney stones and have to pass this little tiny piece of calcium deposit through their urethra. Yeah. Extreme. No, this pain. lady from the Paris figure skating for the, the Paris figure skating last night, she had an intestinal blockage and she almost fucking died. Yeah. So it was these, really bad. And her are, husband is heterosexual and he's her skating partner and he's so hot. Just so you know. You guys, that's all the time we have for getting curious this week. Um, thanks for your Twitter questions, guys. Uh, that boy who had those two good questions about weed, and I said maybe you'd be my boyfriend. I hope that wasn't weird for you. And, uh, you know, I just love you guys so much. And uh, we'll see you next time on Getting Curious. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Vaness, and my guest this week was Professor Kathy Cow. You'll find links to Kathy's work and social media in the episode description of whatever device you're listening to this show on. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and my Facebook fan page at JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks to her so much for letting us use it. And if you enjoyed our show, honey, tell us. Tell all your friends. Tell every all your friends' friends. Go on their Facebook, tell them, troll them, love them, kiss them, mean mug them. I don't care. Scream getting curious out your door when you're driving down the street. Like, don't get pulled over about it. But, like, I wouldn't be mad at you if you, like, did a video of you screaming at strangers, like, like through your car window and then, like, Instagram it to me. And then, like, maybe I'll post it because it's hilarious. Like, just start screaming to listen to getting curious to anyone that will listen. And with that, you know, I hope you're keeping your chin up with Valentine's Day. I know I did. You know, can't beat him, join him. Except for not in relationship. Just, you know, make yourself feel great. Post a topless picture. Get that validation. Love you. Bye.